Thank you very much, Zane. Yeah, today we begin our study in James. It's going to be exciting the next few weeks. And in case you're wondering, we are going to go back to the book of John. But we're going to go wait until we get to the, the beginning of the year so that, um, so that the resurrection actually falls on Easter. So we have a plan. So in order to fill that time period, we decided to go through the book of James, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I don't know about you, but it is a great book. I want to start out with a question, though, that seems like maybe it doesn't have a lot to do with James. But you'll see. I'll tie it together. The Lord will tie it together, and, and you'll get there. But let me ask you this question. What, what is the best concert you've ever been to? The best, now you, it's a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about that. What is the best concert you've ever been to? And I, I can tell you that when I was a kid, when I was a teenager growing up in the, in the, in the 70s, you know, there's a t-shirt I saw once at a concert not, not long ago, and it said, I may be old, but I saw all the cool bands. And I thought, wow, that is a great t-shirt. I need to get one of those because I spent a lot of money on concerts when I was a kid. I saw a lot of bands. Sherry makes fun of me because I'll go, yeah, I saw them. No, I saw them. Everybody, I grew up in Omaha, and everybody, everybody came through Omaha between Kansas City, Chicago, and Denver. Omaha was an easy stop. I'll bet you wouldn't think this of me, though, looking at me now, but my first two concerts were Kiss. I know. It's crazy to think, right? I know. I just scared half of you to death. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I would go see them now, but boy, I sure loved them back then, you know? I have to tell you, it wasn't very godly, but they did put on a pretty good show. But, you know, I just thought you might be interested to know that I was, I was kind of a rocker when I, was, when I was younger. So, Ted Nugent, Kiss, all those guys. Yeah, heavy metal. Jace is with me on this. See? I'm not the only one. Doobie Brothers, come on now. Get down with it, all right? But right before we moved down here, right before we moved down here, uh, Sherry and I went to a concert up in Red Rocks. And if you've never been to a Red Rocks concert, uh, you really need to do that if you can in your lifetime because there's nothing like seeing a concert at Red Rocks up there in the Denver foothills. It's beautiful. It's completely man, God made, let's just put it that way, God made amphitheater. This natural sound is gorgeous. And if you sit high enough, the stage sits facing east. And so you can see all the way out to the east, almost to La Junta, if you get high enough up there. I mean, it is, it's beautiful, especially at night when the sun goes down. It's just amazing. But anyway, we went to go see this concert for her birthday. We went to go see Mercy Me. I don't know if you know who they are, if you like that, if, a, if you listen to Christian music at all. If you're not familiar with Miss Mercy Me, you're probably familiar with one of their songs, I Can Only Imagine. It's a song that they, they sang several years ago now, and they made a great movie out of it, and the story of how that song came about. Uh, the lead singer's name is Bart Millard. And uh, the reason why I bring them up is because uh, I love the song, if I can only imagine, but there was another song that I loved even more, and that song is called Even Now. If you're a fan of Mercy Me, you've heard that song, or if you've listened to Christian radio, they play that all the time. And when we were at the concert, uh, Bart gave the testimony of that song, why he wrote that song. And he wrote that song because 
his son, right before he wrote it, was diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. So, not something that you really would wish on your child. You know, there's all kinds of complications that can come from that and unknowns for their life. So he wrote this song. And let me read you some of the lyrics from the song. It's called, Even If. They say, sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. And right now, right now, I'm losing bat. I've stood on the stage night after night, reminding the broken, it'll be all right. Excuse me while I can, I need to be able to read it. But right now, oh, right now, I just can't. It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down. But what will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now? I know you're able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. Now, you know, and it goes on from there, and I, I love that song. You can imagine, I'm sorry, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a crier. I apologize for that, but I get a little emotional when we start thinking about this and God and stuff like that. So if you're new here, get used to it. I can't help it. It just happens. If, you're, if, you're, if you've been here for a long time, you know that that's just me, right? But I love that song. It's probably my favorite Mercy Me song. And, and, and he took that song from the story in Daniel 3 of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know how they were, they were, Nebuchadnezzar built this golden idol, and he wanted all the people to bow down to this golden idol. And if they didn't, that they would be punished. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to the golden idol. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, he became angry with them, and he ordered them to be burned in the fiery furnace. And he asked them, who is this God who will save you? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said this to him in Daniel 3, starting in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we, need, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Bart Millard in his song, even if, reiterated what these three men said, that even if God doesn't heal his son, even if he chooses to let him go through trials and suffering, that his hope is in his God alone. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that they were thrown into the furnace. In fact, the furnace was made like seven times hotter than normal. And inside, Nebuchadnezzar said, who's that fourth person? I thought we just put three people in there. And the fourth person, of course, was Jesus. And they came out of the fiery furnace, and they weren't even burned. They weren't even singed. They didn't even smell like fire. We trust in our God, even when things don't go well. So today, as we start 
in our study in James, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. But, but in verses 2 through 8, we'll be looking at how we are called to deal with trials and temptations that come our way. And we'll start to see this in verse 1, you know, because it's important for us to understand who James is and what the purpose of his letter was and who he wrote it to and what is the occasion of his writing. So let's read James 1, 1 through 8 together, and then we'll start this morning. James 1, 1 through 8. James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ of the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And he is a double-minded man, unable, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the study of your word, Lord. We thank you, God, for the letter that James wrote that we have the privilege to read, to understand what it means to live through trials and tribulation, Lord, to deal with the temptations that come in life, Lord, and, and to gain wisdom from you. Lord, as we begin to look at James's life and how he lived these words out, these are not just words he says, these are words James lived. I pray, God, that they would be words that we live as well. Speak through me this morning, Lord, and open our hearts and minds to hear what it is that you have to say. We lift this up to you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. So as we start out in verse 1, we see that James says, I, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So who is James? The consensus is that James is this, this James, there's many Jameses in the Bible, and sometimes it gets a little confusing, like how many Marys there are, which one is she? This James, the consensus is that he is the half-brother of Jesus. He's also known as James the Just. Now, James was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he was prominent in the Jerusalem Council, if you read in the book of Acts in chapter 15, you'll see that he played a prominent part. He was not an apostle. That's an, that's an important distinction, that even though he was not one of the original 12 apostles, he actually was a leader and had great influence in the church. He was a well-respected leader in Jerusalem and in the church, and he did not become a believer in his brother, Jesus, until after Jesus had shown himself to him after his resurrection. That tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says, Then he, Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He was a contemporary of the apostle Paul. In one of Paul's influences, in Galatians 1, 18 and 19, if you're taking notes, Galatians 1, 18 and 19, Paul writes this, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. 
Paul continues to talk about James in Galatians 2, 9 through 10, about his influence on him. And he says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be the pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So you can see from these verses that James was one of the leaders of the church by this time. And he was one of the ones who commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go and take the message of hope to the Gentiles that Paul had been tasked with by the Lord Jesus. And he was given a mandate to remember the poor, which Paul did throughout his life. Now it is believed that James died in 62 AD as a martyr. The Christian historian Clement, an early leader and writer in the church, tells an account that James was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to a group of Jews. And he was standing on this wall. And as he was preaching, and James had such a uh, uh, remarkable uh, respect by all the Jews that they all came to, to watch him preach and hear what he had to say. But then when he started to talk about Jesus, they became angry. And one of the men climbed up the wall and pushed James down a set of stairs. But that didn't kill him. But what did kill him after that was the beatings. And a guy took a club and whacked him over the head and killed him. He was killed because he was preaching about his brother. Now James, what is this book about? And when was it written? It was written around 42 AD. So let's keep that in mind that Jesus was crucified around 30 to 33 AD. So this letter was very early, very early in Christian history. James was telling it because he lived it. He saw it. And he was a witness to his brother. He uses the term brothers a lot, so we can tell that he is writing to Christians. He is writing to Jewish Christians. He is trying to reach those and, and extol them to live lives of purity and to live lives for Christ because they had been straying. They are under a persecution that this church that he is, these people that he is. Is, is writing to are all under persecution. They are being persecuted for their faith. They're not, be, they're not being persecuted because of the Romans. They're being persecuted by their own brothers, the Jews who, who are angry that they are following Christ. And he is encouraging them to be strong in their faith, to be strong in their faith, to deal with these issues that are coming before them and to understand where wisdom comes from. James reads, especially in the first chapter, like the book of Proverbs. In fact, this first section of James that we're going to be looking at could actually have been broken down to where like every three or four verses could be a sermon in itself. But in, my, uh, <laughs> in the way I broke it up, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to look at them together. But you could read them, and it seems like sometimes that he is just giving instruction with no connection from one paragraph to another, but in fact, he really is. In fact, in first chapter, the first chapter that we're going to look at in a minute, it deals with some of the tough issues like persevering through trials, being hearers and doers of Christ's teaching, that there is an action to our faith. It is not passive. And chapter 2 deals with the sin of partiality and how that works in a person's life. 
chapter 3, we, we get into um, the trouble with our tongues, how our words actually are, are weapons against people. Chapter 4, we have a, a warning about making friends and being too worldly, not being more godly, not in boasting. In chapter 5, talks about the pursuit of riches over the kingdom of God and the dangers of doing such things. And finally, in his letter, he concludes with the definition of a faith-filled prayer. So James is an awesome book that deals with a lot of practical things that we see that we need to get through what we're going through in this world even today. One of my mentors preached through the book of James and he called the series Gym Class, which I thought was clever and actually pretty accurate as far as what we're going to be going through. And not all of us like gym class. I love gym class. It was way better than math class. <laughs> That's, that was where mine was at, my mind was at. But I always thought it was clever. So we're going to go to gym class. So let's start to dig into the first several verses of James, going through verses 2 through 4. And he starts out, James does not mess around. Again, he doesn't have time to mess around. This church is, is dealing with some very difficult issues. And they're wondering, how is it that we get through these trials? And so James says this. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is showing his understanding of what his readers are going through right away. They're going through difficult trials in their life. Again, not from the Romans, but from their own people. They are suffering. They are being killed for the faith. They are going through difficulties, along with facing the normal things that we face in life. Death, sickness, all different kinds of things. But let's get this straight. You know, when we think of trials and even when we see things that are terrible and we don't understand, the argument is always, why would a loving God let horrible things happen in this world? Why would a loving God let horrible things happen in this world? Even this week as we look back and we see what happened in Afghanistan, in the bombing and the killing of innocent people and the 13 Marines and Navy people and all of the innocent bystanders who were there. Why would a loving God allow these things to happen? It's very simple. He didn't. God did not orchestrate trials and tribulations in our life. Sin is what brought trials and tribulations into our life. Sin, the fall, as we talk about it in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all bad things can be traced back to then. Our disobedience is what brings trials into our lives. This was not a part of God's original plan. But the great thing about God is, is He takes these trials in our lives to help us mold us more into the image of His Son. This is the purpose of the trials that God uses. He takes things that are horrible and he makes them good. So James is telling us that these trials that the Lord is allowing in our lives, they have purpose. It should cause us to consider that, that these trials, these various kinds of trials that we face, 
all different kinds. They can be illness, they can be death, job loss, they can be persecution. You were a missionary in the Middle East and you got caught preaching the gospel of Christ, you could be thrown in jail and tortured. We are to count them as all joy. That seems odd, doesn't it? How can you count that as all joy? So what does James mean? Is he saying that we're expected to jump up and down with gladness when we lose our job? No. This is not what he is saying here. In fact, the word joy here is what's known as a metaname. I'm not going to say it again. Metaname. Okay, I did. What that means is it's a substitute for a word for another than which we are familiar with. So what that means is like, you know, the phrase you might hear somebody called a suit if they are an executive. You might because they wear suits. So you identify them. Well, the suits are the ones who make all the decisions around here. So that's what he's saying, you know, that he's using joy as a term for what is familiar. So joy is, is used to help us understand that the purpose of our trials and temptations that we face are to bring us more closer to Christ and more like Him, to sanctify us, to allow us to be transformed more and more into the image of our Savior until we reach completeness and perfection. To draw us closer to Him in our faith, to trust Him, to help us to grow so that our endurance grows and it grows greater with each one that we go through and find victory so that we are prepared. We are prepared to run the race to the finish, to do it well, to get to the end, to cross the finish line. The Lord knows that when we go through trials and temptations that there's going to be pain, emotional and physical depending on what the trial is. The Lord is the one who designed us to have the emotions that we have. He designed us to feel, and sometimes we feel our emotions very, very deeply. Hurt and pain can be incredibly deep and leave deep wounds and scars in our lives. You've heard that old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me is immensely naive because we know as we've gotten older that words can hurt way more than any stick or stone can. So what James is saying here is that the trials and temptations we face one after another after another build endurance like a marathon runner training to run a marathon. Each day increasing your mileage and intensity to build the endurance you need to complete the race on race day, to endure until the end, which brings great joy of an accomplishment well done. It is not that we need to win the race. The race has already been won by Jesus Christ. He's the one who broke the tape at the finish line by his work on the cross. Our task is to complete the race. To complete the race. It doesn't matter if you finish last, but you must finish. That's what Jesus is telling us. That's what James is telling us here. We are training for our next home in heaven. The new heaven and the new earth that we talked about the last two weeks. 
So when we face trials, we face them with grit and determination. We may fail at the beginning and from time to time, but we repent and we move forward and we get up and we get back in there and we take on the next test and we trust God. Because the purpose of our pain is not because we have a God who just stands up there and, and gets joy of watching us squirm. Not at all. It's because He's trying to discipline us and to train us to be more like Him because He knows that's what we need. John Piper says this about suffering and trials. He says, I've never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life have come in times of ease and comfort. But I have heard many saints say every significant advance I've ever made in grasping in the depth of God's love and growing deep with Him have come through suffering. And I know that in my own life, I can tell you that when I look back on it and I see what God has done, the greatest times of growth have come through times of trials. It's when I get to the end of myself and I have no other place to go and I reach out to Him is where I grow. It's how I move forward. 1 Peter 4, 12-16, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit, the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his name. Do you see what Peter is saying there? He's telling us that we are to rejoice when we go through sufferings. This shouldn't be something that's strange to us. As we live, we should know that trials are coming. It should not come as a surprise. It should not make us angry at God when they come. Life is hard. Life here on earth is hard. Training is hard. Training is hard. Paul explains his sufferings and his desire for these sufferings to bring him closer to Christ. He says this in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness the righteousness from God that depends on faith. But get this here in verse 10. He says this. He says that I may know Him. I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul 
you can see his maturity as a Christian. He wasn't looking at the temporary pain that he was in. He was looking at through his sufferings. I will obtain the resurrection. My body will be resurrected and I will be with him. And my soul lot in life is to know him and to know him more. And I will go through anything for that to happen. Are you like Paul? Will you go through anything to know Jesus? Will you endure anything? Will you rejoice in sufferings if that means that going through that suffering will bring you closer to Him? There are times when I wonder if I will. I can tell you that. I'm going to be completely honest. There are times when I wonder if I really will do that. If there's things in life that come up that I don't really want to go through, am I willing to do that? I believe that God gives us the time. When the time comes, he gives us what we need in order to get there. Paul brings this out in Romans 5, 3 through 5, when he talks about the purpose of suffering and what, what the progression of suffering is. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The purpose of our sufferings is fourfold. It starts with suffering and then it grows in endurance, which we have talked about a lot. But then it grows into character, a character that allows us to keep trusting the Lord and to become more victorious with each passing trial, each temptation that God allows us to overcome and we don't fall to. And finally, it grows into a, into a never-ending hope in Jesus Christ and the salvation that he provided for us through his death and resurrection and his ascension into heaven. We hope in his glorious return that we will one day be with him and he will get us and we will be glorified with him in heaven. Paul is reiterating what James tells us in verses 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you see, we're, we're suffering because it's training to build us, to give us endurance in our faith. Building, as we've talked about, it's, endurance is hard. Man, I remember, I remember being a kid, you know, and, and growing up in Omaha, as I said earlier, in the first day of two-a-days practice for football. Oh, man. And the humidity and the heat of August in Nebraska. I know it's hot in La Junta, but add about 70% humidity on top of that. And I remember, guys, you know, we would be wearing full pads and three-quarter length shirts. I mean, there was no mercy by the coach. And if you took your helmet off, you had to run a lap, and nobody wanted to do that. We ran plenty. We ran so much that many, many times guys would be puking at the end of practice, just retching their guts out. I know it sounds terrible, and I could put it nicer, but I'm not going to because it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. I mean, there's really just no way of saying it. I mean, I did that before, and there is nothing like puking your guts up after going through some endurance. But you know what? By the end of the season, nobody was puking. Nobody was puking. You know why? Because I know I'm, I'm using a football analogy, and 
I know there are not a lot of football fans here, but football is a four-quarter game, right? You see guys go out on the football field in the fourth quarter, and they raise their hands up like this, right? Four. We're going to win the fourth quarter. Well, that's the way it is with us. It's a lifetime journey, this faith is, this walk with the Lord, this sanctification process that we're in. And we're going to win the fourth quarter because God is training us for us. It is not because of our strength that we're going to win. It's because of His strength and what He did for us that we're going to win. So the joy in suffering comes from growing closer to Christ and gaining the victory and knowing that when we win the victory, there is joy. There is joy. So when the trial comes, be ready to have joy because you know when it's over, you're going to have the victory. Charles Spurgeon says, trials teach us what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we're made of. And that's true. We think of Job, you know, and, and, and his wife said, you know, through all the things that he was going through, just curse God and die. And Job, even though, you know, he got angry and he questioned God, and he, you know, and, and there were things about things that happened to him he didn't understand, he never cursed God. Never. And that is what James is telling us, that we will become more mature in our trials and be ready for anything. So when we ask, you know, where is the justice in, in getting sick, getting cancer, coming down with chronic illness, when my loved ones suffer and die, the car accident I was in that left me messed up for the rest of my life, where is the justice in this, Lord? Where is the justice when I lose my job? Where is the justice when I, I feel so alone and depressed that I don't want to leave my own house? Where is the justice when my child is going through difficult things. Where is that, Lord? Let me say to you what the Lord should say to us. Where is the justice in the cross? Where is the justice in the cross? And I ask that because Christ deserved none of what he suffered through. He was the innocent one who took on sin for us so that we might be made into the righteousness of God. Our sins were transferred, imputed to Him, and His righteousness imputed to us. The innocent Lamb of God died on the cross for you, willingly. He endured to the end for you. Can we not endure the little things that we go through for him. But you might say, well, Scott, well, how do I get the wisdom that I need that I'm lacking to endure these trials and, and win against these temptations I face? It seems like I lose every single time. James tells me that, that I'm going to lack nothing. I'm going to be made perfect and complete. When does that happen? Where is the wisdom I need to endure? Well, these last four verses in James, he gives us the answer. And it seems so simple, and yet it seems so difficult at the same time. Let's read verses 5 through 8 together. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, 
well, doesn't that kind of seem like, well, duh. I mean, that seems, you know, like simple. We should, as Christians, know that if we lack wisdom, we go to the source, we ask God. And then he says, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Verse 5, it makes it seem so easy, doesn't it? But why, why then is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? Well, it's because of verses 6 through 8. Faith means, you know, to have simple trust. To trust God and his promises that they are real and that he will actually deliver on them. And that he will be with you through them, providing you all you need so that you lack nothing as he builds endurance in you to win the race. James tells us that we just ask God for wisdom, the practical knowledge and the tools that we need in order to endure the trials and temptations that come our way. Where do we go? Let me ask you this question. Where do we go when we need to find out how to replace the kitchen faucet? Where do we go when we need to replace spark plugs in our car? Change the oil. YouTube, of course, right? We go to YouTube. I mean, that's where I go first. I mean, I look at YouTube and I go, man, I don't know if I really want to take that project on. I might have to hire that one out. Or when my father-in-law was alive, I would go to him. I would go to someone who knew what to do, someone who had did the task before, who would show me how to do it. There's been too many times when I didn't follow that wisdom and tried it on my own, and three days later, I was still on the same project and had to have somebody bail me out. So James says in verse 5 that if we lack wisdom, if we aren't sure how to do the how to handle the trial that we're currently facing, that we go to the one who's the source, the one who understands, the author of everything that we know in this world. And he gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If we come, repentant hearts, understanding that we need his help, he gives to us generously. That is a promise that we can hold on to. Do we hold on to it? There is the test. So how do we go to God? Sometimes it seems like a simple question. We go to him in prayer. But let me share this illustration. You may have seen this illustration before. Your Bible sitting there just like this, staring at you. You may not have opened it for a while and you go, Lord, speak to me. I am not hearing you, Lord. Speak to me. I need to hear your voice today. Lord, I am not hearing from you. Speak to me. Speak to me. But the Bible is closed. How is the Lord going to speak to you if you are not opening up his word to hear what he has to say? Think of it like painting a wall with a brush without opening the paint can. You'll brush and you brush and you brush, but the wall never changes into the color that you want it to. Why is that? 
because you never opened the paint can. It's the same way with the Lord. If you want the Lord to speak to you, then you need to open the paint can. You need to open up His Word. You need to read what He has to say to you. You need to get to know Him. The Word of God is our instruction. It's also about Him, His plan for us. How do we endure? Through Christ, who said, Give me your burdens, and I will take them. My yoke is light. Our God wants to take our burdens from us. We don't have to carry our trials with us. We can give them to Him. But if we don't read the Bible, then we're carrying this rucksack full of rocks all our lives. Carrying it, wondering why does this thing keep getting heavier? Because it seems like somebody's opened the back and just putting more rocks in it all the time. How do you endure? How do you take on the next one? You give it to Him. There is the wisdom. But we are to do this. This is the hard part. Without doubting. There can be no doubt. You cannot have doubt in your mind. In other words, you need to understand that what God says is what God says, and this is what we're going to do. James says that if you doubt, you're like a wave in the sea being tossed to and fro by the wind. In other words, you have no conviction on the course that you were set to take. And you end up going east, and then west, and then maybe north, and then west and east, and you will never make your destination. But God, in His Word, gives us our destination. He has set the course of our lives. And if we study His Word and we are with Him and we pray to Him and ask for Him to enlighten us and give us the wisdom of His Word, we will have conviction to stay on course. We will have conviction to endure and make it to the end. James says that, if, you know, it's, it's like, I think of it like this, you know, when we talk about Him, He says that we are like a double-minded person unstable if we don't do it that way if we try to go off on our own it's like it's like standing on a ladder and trying to change a light bulb in the ceiling on one leg it's pretty dangerous you're going to fall jesus wants to hold you he wants to carry you he wants to take you through the trials and tribulations there's the wisdom the wisdom is, is that we have a God who's already been there. And even if, in as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we talked about earlier, even if he doesn't take the trial away, even if there is a greater purpose in what you're going through, even though it might be the hardest thing you've ever faced in your life, we must remember that we put our trust in him in Him alone, because it is our hope. There is no other hope in this world. You look around today, and there is no hope. We are in a time period in our lives right now where this world in which we live, in this country in which we live, and we are grateful now that we have freedom to come here. But as we have seen in the last year with COVID and everything, they are not far from telling us that we can't meet together. In fact, they already tried. We have to remain diligent 
to stay on course and to follow what Christ has told us to do. To be like Him. To be strong. Because I'm telling you, the time is coming, and it may already be here, where our faith is going to be put to the ultimate test. God may call you to go somewhere that you don't even know. I didn't know I was coming to La Junta, I can tell you that. You know, when I you know, planned out the course of my life when, as a kid, La Junta was not in it. But God brought us here, and I'm glad He did. I'm grateful that He brought us here. But I didn't want to come here. I'm just telling you. I learned to love it here. And I love it here. Because I love you. But this isn't even a trial. This was a test of would you believe me that I'm calling you to La Junta, Colorado. Where is the La Junta, Colorado? I had to look it up. So, you know, but this is the point I'm trying to say is that God calls us and he calls us to be on course he calls us to follow him he calls us to trust him and along the way in order for us to grow more and more into the image of a son he gives us trials and tribulations to go through but he doesn't just leave us off on our own to handle them on our own he is with us in the power of the holy spirit who lives inside of you all the time i will never leave you i will never forsake you he said. And he never will. He never will. Bart Millard said this about a song, Even If. Even if is a reminder to people in difficult situations that don't seem to go away, that God was worthy long before any of those circumstances even showed up. This song is a declaration to God that even if he went silent and never said another word, He's still worthy to be praised and that he's our greatest hope in the midst of this trial. Is this the conviction that you hold? That what you're going through right now in your trials and tribulations, that even if God were not to speak to you again, that he would still be worthy of your praise, that he would still be worthy of your joy. I want to I want to have our concluding prayer this morning. It comes from this book called The Valley of Vision, which Stu gave me a copy of this, which I use diligently. But the prayer that I'm, I'm going to pray this morning is called A Cry for Deliverance. And this is an example of a prayer. And now it's going to sound because, you know, it's a professional prayer. Honestly, this guy wrote this, and it's a great prayer. But it's like I want to give this as an example. You know, if you're not sure, how do I pray to God? and ask him for wisdom for things. How do I pray to God to get through an endurance? I want us to pray this prayer and use this as a model for you when you pray to him. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, save me entirely from sin. I know I am righteous through the righteousness of another, but I pant and pine for likeness to thyself. I am thy child, and should bear thy image. Enable me to recognize my death unto sin. When it tempts me, may I be deaf unto its voice. Deliver me from the invasion as well as the dominion of sin. Grant me to walk as Christ walked, to live in the newness of his life, the life of love, the life of faith, the life of holiness. I abhor my body of death, 
It's indolence, envy, meanness, and pride. Forgive and kill these vices. Have mercy on my unbelief, on my corrupt and wandering heart. When thy blessings come, I begin to idolize them and set my affection on some beloved object, children, friends, wealth, honor. Cleanse the spiritual adultery and give me chastity. Close my heart to all but thee. Sin is my greatest curse. Let thy victory be apparent to my consciousness and displayed in my life. Help me to always be devoted, confident, obedient, resigned, childlike in my trust of thee. To love thee with my soul, body, mind, and strength. To love my fellow man as I love myself. To be saved from unregenerate temper, hard thoughts, slanderous words, meanness, and unkind manners. To master my tongue and keep the door of my lips. Fill me with thy grace daily that my life may be a fountain of sweet water. Amen.